<laughs> We're starting a series called The Journey. He's an honorable guy, I promise. Um, you can follow along on version if you have your phone with you. I know I don't sound convincing, eh? He really is a good guy. He just got a great deal on that, on that Jeep. Um, so you can follow along on version if you have your phone with you. Uh, just remember to save it if you want to go back to the notes at a later stage. I'm going to be reading quite a lengthy uh, portion of Scripture to you, and then we're going to wrap up with a couple of uh, points, just three simple uh, sort of applications. And the big idea um, around today is the fact, number one, just to encourage everybody that we're all on a journey. We're all uh, in a process, whether you realize it or not, we're all on a journey. Um, hopefully, hopefully, uh, in fact, I do think that you're on a spiritual journey, even if you're not sure what that is yet. So even if you're on uh, kind of at that point of your journey where you are investigating, you're exploring, you're, you're on a journey. And we always want to encourage you just to keep taking whatever that next step is. Um, I think the worst thing you can do is compare yourself to somebody else and to uh, kind of get discouraged or to get puffed up. Just relax. You're on your journey and, and you're wanting to hopefully obey God and his promptings as you go along, even for those of you that are in that relationship, so you've crossed that line of faith and you've chosen to surrender your life to Jesus, um, like that's almost just the beginning of that whole other phase of your journey um, where we continue to grow one step at a time, one season at a time until we're not breathing anymore, until we, until we cross over into eternity. So we're all on a journey. Some people I think are tempted to kind of separate what we would call a spiritual journey from, from their life journey. I think God sees it all together. Um, and so much so, in fact, that I want to make the proposal that, that how we view Jesus, so our, our view of his identity will actually directly influence our destiny. Sometimes we're, we're wrestling over and, 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 and praying and, and talking and, and thinking and distracted and daydreaming about, about some type of destiny or destination. Um, and I actually tend to think that God very seldom reveals the, the distant end picture to people. Sometimes he does. I have an opinion as to why that is. I think it normally means that it's going to be a lot tougher and you need something to hold on to. Um, but for the most part, God doesn't actually give us all this detail I think that for the most part, we actually reach and achieve our destiny based on our relationship with Jesus and, and, and how we actually view his identity, who we think he is in our lives will actually determine whether or not we're going to follow him or whether we're just going to see him as another voice amongst many that's kind of giving us an opinion, giving us a suggestion, or whether or not we actually see him as the master, as the leader. And so I think that this is kind of what Jesus was trying to address in this particular portion that we're going to read in Matthew chapter 16. You can either follow along on the screens or on the small screen in front of you, reading from verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. He's referring to himself. Who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. This is because there are some scriptures in the Old Testament that's, that, that gave people the impression that maybe, uh, it, it was speaking metaphorically about, about the prophets coming back again, but it wasn't actually a literal reference. So some people thought, well, maybe Jesus is one of these, one of these godly Old Testament prophets that have come back you know, to life and to, to kind of influence and teach and lead us. And of course, in the 21st century, you've got no shortage of opinions all around you. 
uh, all, all over the web in terms of who Jesus is. Um, a lot of them are not offensive. Um, a lot of them are actually very flattering, but a lot of them are not accurate. So people may agree that he's a good man, that he was a prophet, um, but not necessarily that he was God. And this is, a, this is a big deal, which I'll touch on again in a moment. Jesus kind of wants to shift the focus of, of who do people say I am, because, by the way, it's one thing for us to give an opinion about other people's opinions. That doesn't change your life. What will change your life is when you actually make it personal and you take responsibility for who do I say that Jesus is. So he gets personal with them and he says, okay, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? He's asking his disciples. And I want to encourage you just to take a a few seconds this morning and just in your own mind for a moment, just just reflect for, for a couple of seconds. Who is it that you actually think Jesus is. And just be honest with yourself. No one else is able to audit your thoughts. Do you see him as, as a good person? Do you see him as, as a fable? And again, by the way, this, this can influence people on both sides of the, of the line of actually choosing to follow him, because I think that there are a lot of Christians. So they've, they've maybe taken that initial step of, of wanting to have a relationship, but, but still there's such a a distorted view of him almost being like a Father Christmas. Or on the other extreme, this really angry headmaster who's just looking to constantly punish you and, and, and point out everything that you do wrong. Sometimes without us realizing it, we, we may subscribe to some version of a genie in the bottle where, where we kind of rub the Bible a couple of times and, and we hope that, you know, poof, you know, something's going to appear and, and if I pray a good prayer, then maybe I'll get that that dream, I'll get that car, I'll get that wife or husband or another husband or wife or, or whatever, you know, um, fill in the blank. Like, like we, we want him to grant us a few wishes. In fact, you know that you're going down that road when, when you start giving into thoughts like, if I just had fill in the blank, then I would be fill in the blank. Like if God just gave me that promotion or if I just got that incredible opportunity, or if I could just finally get that citizen status, or I could just get that visa, well, then, then surely everything would kind of be sorted out. And without us realizing that sometimes we can actually morph him into our own image instead of actually being changed into his image, which is what the Bible says maturing in a relationship with God is. We, we actually surrender to being, to being molded into his image and we resist the very real temptation to mold him into our own image. You don't have to put your hand up. I'm just telling you, there have been plenty of times in my life where I have been, where, where without me realizing it subtly, subconsciously, I've, I've, I've wanted to mold him into my perception of who and what I think he should be. So who do you think he is, because that question, whether you realize it or not, can actually change everything about your life, the answer to that. It can change everything about your journey. It can change everything about your destiny. If he's just someone to give you another opinion that, that you kind of throw into the mix with a bunch of other opinions and like, eh, don't like that one, Jesus. That one's good, okay. Eh, so, so, you know, and, and you kind of, and you throw it in there with Google and Wikipedia and, and your granny and, and, and a, you know, or, or if we have this opinion that you are God, you are 
the master. I'm the servant. I don't have to agree. I have to surrender. I don't have to understand. I have to follow. Who we say he is changes everything. Everything. He asks them, who do you say I am? And Peter, who's got a personality that tends to you know, speak quite openly and honestly, which is good, answers and says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, this is a good thing that he makes this declaration. Jesus replies, in fact, that you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. By the way, just side note, especially if you're praying for someone else who you, who you know is not yet in a relationship with God and you want them to find that hope and healing, that's why prayer is so powerful. And that's why prayer is so important because you cannot convince or convert someone. It's not your responsibility. You can pray. You can ask God to soften a heart to, to reveal his goodness, um, to draw him to himself. Unless, unless God is able to pierce that, that paradigm, that mindset, that filter, and soften that heart, we can't do it in our own strength. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now there's some debate, most of us, most of you perhaps wouldn't care about this, but there's a bit of a debate in terms of what that phrase means, and, and whether or not he was referring to Peter as the rock, and therefore was he the first pope of the first church, or was he referring to the declaration that Jesus had just made, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God? But either way, Jesus, I subscribe to the second opinion, Either way, Jesus goes on to say that, that he is going to build his church. And, and in some older versions, the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. In other words, he wasn't painting this picture that, that, that here you know, in my kingdom we'll be able to kind of withstand the, the enemy. He's saying, no, 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 the enemy is not going to be able to withstand us. We're going to make progress. We're going to, we're going to depopulate you know, those destined to hell, and, and we're going to populate heaven. Like we're, going to, we're going to make a dent in the enemy's camp. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, even that messes with your head, right? Because you're like, what do you mean? Shouldn't we be plastering it all over social media? Shouldn't we be? And again, we're not talking in today's context. We're saying back then, Jesus was less concerned, I think, with a populist fan club, or I think we call them fandoms now. Okay, you're actually all too old. I have a teenage daughter, okay? Fandoms, you know, for whatever, all these different trilogies and things going on. Um, uh, he wasn't looking for a fandom. He was actually very focused on, on extending an invitation to people that were going to be willing to follow. And even that word follow has been misused in the 21st century because I just have to click on something and I'm following someone on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know, like I'm a follower. No, you're not. Or I think on Facebook, are you still friends? Are you a friend? I can't even keep up anymore, whether you're a friend or, anyway, both ways, we're probably lying, okay? We're just, we're just interested in you, so we're living voyeuristically through you on Instagram, and we're kind of just trying to see that we're comparing well enough to you on Facebook. Anyway, like that's not the type of follower that he was looking for. He was looking for people that, frankly, were actually Actually, when it really came down to it, they were going to believe so strongly that they were willing to lay their lives down. That's a very different level of 
following. So, so that's why it actually even messes with your head. And by the way, Jesus will often mess with your head. If you think you have fully understood him, then respectfully, I would suggest that you've maybe begun to mold him into your own image. That's not to say that there isn't plenty to understand. There is. But often, his ways are not going to be my ways. His timing is not going to be my timing. His thoughts are not, in fact, thank God that they're often not going to be my thoughts. His thoughts are a lot better than mine. So he tells them not to tell anyone. Then he goes on, verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer. Please, please take note of this, part, this portion. That he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, bless you, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Just before we go on, you have to understand, this is like, this is mind-blowing, like, for his disciples. That Jesus would be, so they've just acknowledged, okay, you're the Messiah, like you're the hope from heaven. They thought that that meant, based on certain scriptures in the Old Testament, they, they misinterpreted, they misunderstood. Again, we often misunderstand, which is why we can't demand our way. Let's rather submit to his. They, they, they assumed that the Messiah was going to be an earthly king who was going to rescue them from Roman oppression and was going to re, reinstall uh, an, an, a Jewish king and lead them into righteousness. So when Jesus says, actually, I'm going to die, Peter takes it upon himself to correct Jesus. Uh, verse 22, but Peter took him aside. Imagine, just imagine for a moment, like, Jesus takes him aside and he begins to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turns to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You are a, how's that for some sobriety? I don't think I've ever said that to, just so you know, I'm not going to say that to anyone in the church. I've been tempted, but I've never, anyway. Get away from me, Satan. I think he was talking to the one behind the thought, not to, I don't think he was actually calling Peter. Satan, you, but, he, but listen to this, you are a dangerous trap to me. In other words, he's saying, Peter, you're tempting me. Because of course it's attractive. Of course I'd also rather it be a pain-free journey. Thank you very much. You're a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Jesus is already, he's making it very clear. Very often, a human point of view is not going to be the same as God's. And, and so what we think of Jesus' identity will directly affect our destiny. So whether or not we, we are molding him into our image is going to affect our destiny versus whether or not we are trusting him and seeing him as actually the supreme creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He is, actually the Bible says he's even our mediator. He's our intercessor. He's our helper. Because if, if we see him as that, then we will trust him even when he doesn't make sense. If we see him as supreme, as God, as, as, as the one who knows everything, can do everything. Like, like, like Jesus, if you could have just come down from the cross and you chose not to, if you could have called down legions of angels and you chose not to, well then, 
then, then I'm going to believe that that's because he needed to die in our place. So when I don't think that's good enough and I need to add my groveling and my penance and me paying an additional price to pay for my sins, then I'm saying that what you did on the cross isn't good enough. But I'm going to trust that because you could have come off the cross, and oh, by the way, because you could have rejected that road, you, in other words, there's this whole idea that his life wasn't taken from him, he gave his life. Then, then I'm going to trust him that when he allows me to face confusion and to go through challenges, and even when he allows me to be stretched and tested, I'm going to trust him. My view or my approach to his identity will directly affect my destiny. Then Jesus says to them, I mean, he's getting really, really down to the rubber hitting the road. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way and take up your cross and follow me. If you want to, it's, it's kind of like, I mean, this isn't even rocket science. I think Jesus knew his audience and he's like, guys, if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to follow me. And we would agree with that on face value. But if you've been in a relationship with God and you've been trying to follow him in this journey called life, you, you know that very, very often we don't want to follow where he's leading. We, we're nervous. We're insecure. Which again comes back down to who we see him to be, by the way. And then he makes this completely counterintuitive statement. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. It's this, it's this completely, I mean, you know, we, we read some of these passages now with study Bibles and commentaries, and we can, we can kind of make sense out of some of the stuff that Jesus is saying. But imagine, imagine listening to this for the first time where he's saying, like, what do you mean this lose your life stuff? Like, this doesn't make sense. It's so counterintuitive to give up my way, and I'm going to actually find fulfillment and meaning and purpose. And, and actually, you mean, you, mean, you, mean, you mean Jesus may actually have a better adventure planned for me than, than what I think is going to be the most comfortable way? To pursue a life. And then he kind of wraps up this incredible, challenging, sobering uh, kind of explanation with the following verse that should keep some of us up tonight. And he says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? In Judas's case, he thought 30 pieces of silver was worth more than he saw. Throughout history, over and over and over again. And if I'm honest, there are times in my life where something really simple, really superficial, if I'm not careful, it can actually appear in that moment. It can, be a more, it can appear more significant, more attractive than my soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? Like what, what are we willing to, what price tag, what experience, what promotion, what opportunity are we willing to say, okay, that's worth the state of our soul eternally. It is a big deal. And that's why I believe that how you approach Jesus' identity will ultimately influence your destiny. A couple of, couple of applications very quickly. Three ideas. Number one, if we... If we believe that he is who he says he is, then I believe that we will be proactive and purpose-driven. We will be, 
So if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the promised one, is, is the hope for humanity, if, if he is the only way, if accepting what he did at the cross is the only way to find, to, to accept forgiveness and choosing to follow him is the only way to truly find life and peace and hope and joy, well, then we're actually going to be quite intentional about living lives that are proactive and purpose-driven and not only reactive and pleasure-driven. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasure, by the way. There is something wrong, though, when all we live for is something that's pleasure-driven. If that's our highest end in life, if that's our highest goal in life, then I believe the Bible calls that idolatry. When we take something that's good, so pleasure is good, depending on what it is, but, but if we take something that's good and we make it something that's ultimate, then that becomes an idol. God's not saying you can't enjoy stuff. In fact, one of the fruits of having the Holy Spirit in your life is joy. So, so he wants us to have joy, but that's not going to be our only end, this side of eternity. We have one life. In fact, some say that this is the, this is the probation before the real thing. This, the Bible talks about us camping. This is temporary. These bodies, thank God, are temporary. We're going to live and exist in the real thing for eternity one way or another based on what we did with his son and what we did with our lives. We will be purpose-driven. We will be proactive. When I say proactive, I mean we're not going to only live reactively. Now, just to be clear, there are many times where we are having to react. There are many times where you feel challenged, tempted. You feel like, like, like you are being attacked, and there has to be a defensiveness, and we have to be pushing back. But I don't know about you. Sometimes I get so tired of just feeling like all I'm doing is just, is just re- rejecting the attack, resisting the attack. I feel like I'm just being defensive here and defensive there and defensive there. And sometimes I feel like God's trying to get my attention saying, Jason, like, let's maybe change the stance, and let's actually go on the offensive Maybe, maybe, maybe subconsciously I'm waiting until everything settles down and there's no more attack, then I can go on the offensive. And I actually don't think that that is the case. I don't know if the, if the attack actually ever just stops. I think you have to fight back and you have to take territory. So when Jesus says that he will build his church, and what, what that means is I'm going to be reaching out to people that are far from me. I'm going to be reaching out to people and, and I'm going to be revealing hope and healing. I'm going to be revealing the power of forgiveness and the significance of following me. You have the choice to get on board or not. And so we have this choice to actually wait until everything is plain sailing in our lives, and then I'm going to try and, get a, try and be a part of his mission. Then, I'm, then I might join a team. Then I might give something. I honestly cannot encourage you enough. And I feel like there'd be some people here this morning where you need to we're beyond my voice and my words where you need to actually ask God to give you a sense and a prompting. God, am I just, have, have I actually just, just become so used to this posture of defensive, defensiveness that, that I'm never going on the offensive? And God, is there some way, somehow, some way that you're wanting me to actually, actually take a stand and reach out to somebody, give something, open my home before I've got all my ducks in a row. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and God's even been talking to you about fostering or adopting a child. And maybe you're waiting until you've got everything together. Can I tell you, as people that have fostered and adopted, you won't have everything together, ever. Those of you that have biological children know that you will never have it all together. But you do want to obey God. 
let's not just live reactively, defensively. Let's actually start to take some territory. Let's actually start to care about what God cares about and care about people and, and, and try and be hard to offend so that we don't waste too much unnecessary time trying to forgive and trying not to be bitter. Where we just, God, I need a miracle. Would you soften my heart? Help me to forgive that I can let go of this baggage, that I can move on, that I can still love again, that I can try again, that I can trust again. I want to make a difference. I want to live offensively. So that, so that you're actually living a life where, where maybe the enemy actually says, oh crap, he's awake again. Or she's awake again. Like we have to be a little bit more alert today. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says that you are God's, if you're a Christian, you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Not just to survive. And again, I'm speaking from the position of someone that, that has, I, I get so frustrated when I hit these seasons. I'm like, wait, hold on. I think I'm just surviving right now. And surviving's good. You need to survive. But don't settle for surviving. Take some territory. Do something. Live a life. Ask God to help you live a life that is proactive and purpose-driven. I don't have time to read this passage. In the new version, you'll see that there's a passage in, in Luke 9 where, where Jesus, again, he tells his disciples, hey, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be handed over to the enemy. And they don't understand what he's saying. They actually get distracted. The Bible says, then they, then, then they spoke to each other arguing about who's going to be greatest in his kingdom. And it just hit me again where I'm thinking, you know what? When, when I'm distracted from his mission, uh, is, when, is when I'm willing to compare and compete and look at what the people next to me are doing and how they're doing and how I'm doing compared to them. And he's like, no, 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 no. Just put your, if you, you all know, if you're on a journey, you're trying to look primarily ahead. If you're in a car, the windscreen's big, the rear view mirror is small. And if you spend too much time looking at the people around you, if you those of you that have ever mountain biked or, you know, you know that if you turn your head, your, your handlebars follow. By the way, maybe you don't know that. It does. If you're going to turn your head to look at who's behind you or who's next to you, your, your bike literally, your hands just automatically follow that direction. Be, be very careful that we're looking ahead on this journey of life. Number two, I think that when we have the correct approach to Jesus' identity, we will have confidence in the confusion. We will have confidence in the confusion. And if you've never been in a season of confusion yet as a Christian, where there is no silver lining that you can find, where you don't see how Romans 8.28 is working out for you right now, where you, don't, you cannot see any possibility of how he's going to cause all things to work together for good. In fact, that scripture just irritates you and you want to punch the other Christian in the face who's telling you about that. If you've never been through a season where, you, where there's, just, there's just no way that you can spin it, then I've got some bad news for you. Because there's a pretty good chance that that's ahead of you if you take God seriously. I don't mean that as bad news. I actually mean that to prepare you and encourage you. And that's when for the first time in your life, you'll be able to quote Philippians 4 verse 6 with authenticity, with confidence, with authority, where you can say that he has given me peace that surpasses understanding. 
This doesn't make sense. I don't have any explanation for this. But I know God's in control. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know that it's going to work out in the way I'd like it to, but I know that God is in control. When we know who he is, when we have a correct view of the one leading us on this journey, you'll be amazed at how you can have a peace that passes understanding. You may, you may not get rid of the confusion, so it still doesn't make sense, and you can't explain it to anybody, but you have a confidence. You may not find the clarity that you're seeking, but you can find calm. You may not get rid of the pain, but you have his presence, and you actually, believe it or not, and, and, and I feel like only a few people that are sitting here might, might even begin to get this. You can actually get to a point in your life where you actually want his presence more than the absence of pain. For so many of us, it's just like, just get rid of the pain. I don't care if I have Jesus, just get rid of the pain. No, no, you'll be surprised. You can actually get to a point in your relationship with God where, you, where, where, where if it means that you, that you have to, listen, Paul spoke about having a thorn in his side. He asked God to remove it. God in his grace and wisdom, knowing what Paul needed, and in fact, it actually says that, that he needed to be kept humble, said, when he asked, like, remove it, please, number one. Number two, remove it, please. Third time, remove it, please. Every time, God just said, my grace is sufficient. I feel like I might be scaring a lot of you off. That's okay. All right, hang in there. <laughs> hang in there. By the way, the, sh- the shortest route to your destination to your destiny, even to what you think God has promised you is not always the best route. Some of you, if you've read the first few books of the Old Testament, know that the Israelites wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, when we say wandered around, like we mean they didn't go directly. Like they didn't, they didn't have Google Maps. They didn't, they didn't plot the shortest course if you're walking or if you have public transport or if you're in a car. Deuteronomy 1 verse 2 says, this is Moses speaking to them, saying, normally, this is is just before they're about to enter the promised land. This is now 40 years later. Normally, it takes only 11 days to travel from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, going by way of Mount Seir. What he was saying is, guys, you know this journey that's taken us 40 years? Well, ordinarily... If you had Google Maps, you would have got there in 11 days. 11 days versus 40 years. And I've got to tell you that for most of my time as a Christian, I've viewed that as nothing but an indictment on the Israelites. As, as, as purely an example of failure and rebellion. Now, just to be clear, I think that part of the reason it took them 40 years instead of 11 days, is definitely because of failure and rebellion. If you read the stories, you are amazed at how over and over and over again they're gonna, they complain to God and moan at God and get so cheesed off and, and, and they whine. We don't have water. Okay, God gives them water. Okay, thanks. We don't have meat. Okay, yes, Quill. We used to eat so well in Egypt. No, you didn't. You were slaves. You were beaten. You were abused. Like, like their, their memory is so short. So, so there is a lot of rebellion. But I think it's more than that. God knew, in fact, he actually tells them in other portions that if I let you go straight there, you would be destroyed. 
You've, you've, you've always been these weak, whimsical slaves. Now you need to be a mighty army that's going to trust me. So it's not just your own physical strength, but you also have to trust me and you need to develop strength where you're, where you're able to fight. In fact, he said that, that, that if you went in there now, you wouldn't be able to take over enough territory. And so, and so the enemy and, the, and even the wild animals would still uh, be able to, to withstand their ground. The point I'm trying to make is that if you got what you wanted, when you wanted, sometimes that'd be the worst thing that God could let you have. Because even though it could be his promise, he knows whether or not you're prepared, whether or not you'll be able to cope with it, whether or not you'll be a good steward of it, whether or not it'll be a blessing or if it's going to destroy you. Trust God. Trust God. Even if you're sitting here this morning and you are experiencing pain because you're, there is, there, like, like you're feeling a physical desperation for that thing, for that answer, for that solution. I, I don't want to water it down. I don't want to poo-poo it at all. I just want to encourage you to ask him to give you confidence in the confusion. Jesus, I believe that you're real. I believe that you're able. You're more than able. Anything is possible with you, so if you're, not, if you're not allowing this right now, then please would you give me peace. And if there's anything that, that I'm supposed to do, if you're waiting for me, reveal it to me. But if there's nothing else, if this is just purely a season, give me confidence in your confusion. Third point, and the worship team can come on up, is that if we have the correct view of Jesus and his identity, then we will give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. We will give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. And this is actually from a quote by a young man. His name was Jim Elliott. The, the, the original fool quote actually begins with, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I remember reading this as a probably 19 or 20 year old that, that was new in my faith and new to taking God seriously. And I remember just being so challenged by the statement. And the reason that, that this quote actually became well-known and, 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 and has been used in so many cases is because it was, it was uh, attributed to a young man who was going on a missions trip to a group of unreached uh, tribesmen in Ecuador and him and four other young missionaries were speared to death. So they, they were martyred for the cause of Jesus. In the mid-1950s, they went out to reach out. They were killed. So you can imagine that this added a bit of weight to this quote when people after his death were able to say that this was his paradigm. This was his mindset. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep. So he can't keep his, he can't hold on to his life. So he was 28 at the time. Let's say, let's say he could hold on to another 50 years and play golf one day and pot around in the garden. Like, that's great. But, but is that, is that it? Is that the main thing in his life? After their initial risk and sacrifice, another wave of people went to the tribes in Ecuador. And another wave. And now there are people that have found hope and healing in Jesus because someone had a mindset that said, well, even if I lose my life, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. If you're thinking about doing something that is uncomfortable, inconvenient, there's risk attached. If it's God, then I want to encourage you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain what he cannot lose. Final reference, Matthew 16, verse 24 onwards. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. In fact, can I get you to stand? I want you to hear this. I want you to take this in this morning. Like this isn't the stuff that we normally, you know, publish as the first image that people see when they go onto our website and social media because this, this sounds like challenging news. When we truly understand who God is, then we actually find it exciting. We actually find confidence. We believe that His way is better than our way. So, we don't, so we're not put off when He says that you must give up your own way. Take up your cross. The cause, the, the purpose, the, the unique destiny that God has for you. And follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. I want you to allow those words to ring in your mind. If you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Can you close your eyes for a moment? I want you to hear that again. If you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Just while your eyes are closed, I want you to hear this. You can never outgive God. You can never outtrust God, and He runs out of trustworthiness. You can never be, you can never like out faithful God, because the Bible actually tells us there's this great scripture in Timothy, I think it is, where it says that even when we're faithless, He's still faithful because He cannot deny himself like you cannot change who he is he is the same yesterday today and forever your approach to Jesus identity will directly influence your destiny 